Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, January 19th. Well, we hope a more normal day. Many schools are going back. Some aren't. We document some of what has transpired with schools and uh, back-to-back snow days in the GTA. Who'd have ever thought it? We knew we were going to have a really interesting news week with uh, schools being back in and all that. We also talk about the booster. I know I've talked about it a little bit lately, but the World Health Organization has updated guidance and said there's no tangible benefits for young people, for teenagers, to be getting a third vaccination shot right now. So uh, we do talk about that. A clip from Dr. Lucy McBride, who we've had on, who's advocated so strongly for kids, for normalcy, for data-driven pragmatism uh, on the show as well. An update from Chief Meteorologist from Global News, Anthony Farnell, and much, much more. Thank you for finding us. we got a great podcast ahead, and Toronto Today starts now. I cannot remember a time. Well, I can't remember a time when there was so much snow in Toronto. I don't think since I've lived back here, and that's from late 07. We got blasted in January of 08. Um, former Toronto Mayor David Miller is going to join us on the show tomorrow. He couldn't today, but um, he was a city councillor when um, Mel Lastman called in the armed forces in Canada. There's a lot of armed forces that, <laughs> that probably did that. I'd love to hear. Oh, my gosh. I would love to hear from one of those uh, men or women that had to. We're going where? Why? Snow? Um, and this is pre-9-11, this is pre-Afghanistan, this is pre-a lot of stuff. Uh, of course, you're not sitting there doing nothing, but we, we had a real military focus um, on the planet from September of 2001 onward with Afghanistan. We didn't necessarily in 1999. I'd love for somebody to uh, text me at 289-975-1640, 289-975-1640 if they were involved in that military. But I bring that up because David Miller was mayor in January of 08 when I first moved here in Toronto from Detroit. He was mayor, and he stayed for four years, maybe three years after that. Then, obviously, the infamous election of uh, the late Rob Ford. But I don't remember a snowstorm in the Ford uh, mayoral era that was like that with with Mayor Miller. So he's going to join us on the show tomorrow in the 8 o'clock hour. And Steve Pakin this morning as well. We'll remember this. Guy, guy's got a brilliant encyclopedic mind. He'll join us to talk about it as well. But that drive in this morning, not so bad. You'll use a lot of wiper fluid. Tonight it's going to be uh, minus 15 and then some. So I know I woke up to win this morning. Got a little panicky. I've been leaving really, really early. Can't promise I'll be doing that in April. But I've been leaving really early for the show. And uh, and really, no big deal. No big deal this morning. So um, if you were thinking, ah, it's a third straight white knuckle drive this morning, it isn't. It shouldn't be at the minimum. And uh, maybe also you're getting somebody to drive you out because you abandoned your car on Monday. Nothing to laugh at, but um, it might also have been moved given some of the uh, areas in which the city has had to maneuver cars. And this was our problem yesterday. This time, 24 hours ago, there were exits and entrances to high to highway ramps that were blocked by cars. I couldn't get onto, for example, when I tried to go 401 East from the DVP going 401 East that would lead to you know, Scarborough, Pickering, Ajax, Whitby, Oshawa, all that. Uh, the 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 lane was just uh, just a wall of snow, and it looked like there was a snowblower either stopped or stalled. Could be either, and you had to just you had to join uh, via the collector lanes, and so that was different. I don't know what that'll be like today. I would assume better, but in your neighborhood, probably like mine, we went for a walk, nice sunny walk before dinner last night, and the roads are plowed, the sidewalks, most of them are plowed, like eighty five percent of sidewalk. Uh, areas are plowed, no pathways. Like if you're thinking going into parks, going to, if you want to walk by the lake, if you want to walk through a park, nothing's plowed. So you are, uh, you're in the, you're in the, uh, you're in it. Um, you're in the the wilderness in in uh, in those areas. And I don't know when those happen. You got to get bobcats up and down. They've again, it's been nonstop. I hear the buzz. I hear snowblowers. I hear bobcats. It's a giant construction project, and it probably is in your neighborhood uh, as well. Let me start here on the uh, political side of things. There is talk this morning that, uh, and Doug Ford dropped this yesterday. Uh, I know, a lot of criticism on him. We sort of left that alone. It, it was what it was. I didn't feel the need. Oh, he's distracted driving. I, I got, you know, eyes are on the prize here. 
Eyes are getting schools going. Eyes are getting gyms open. Eyes are getting restaurants and bars back open. That's what I, I I've got very much a not a myopic focus, but because uh, because I can again you know I th- and I think the listeners of the show we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So we saw that for what it was yesterday. But I also didn't want to you know kick up a kick up a storm about it. But he also did a radio interview on Tuesday in Ottawa and says, here's the quote, we'll have some positive news. I believe we're going to make some announcements later this week about going back to other levels of restrictions. And I know there's been a uh, a bit of a bait and switch this entire pandemic uh, when it comes to, well, they said this, now here they've done this. You, here's what I'd say, not to defend necessarily the Ford government, but why I'm sure that we're easing up here. There's two reasons. One, when those things have happened, when those sort of backtracks have happened, they have gone from from bad to good, like draconian to easing up. That's the famous Friday we're closing playgrounds. I mean, my God, in late April, weather's gotten better. Y- you think you, you you think, and we haven't gotten kids vaccinated yet. Understood, but you think you can get COVID nineteen from a from a slide outdoors? You think you can get it from the monkey bars? You, you, you think you can get it from a teeter-totter. We're closing pl- We're closing playgrounds. Schools are closed. And there was an argument at that time, again, pre-vaccination for the vast majority of adults. There was a time when that could be somewhat defendable, and I'll get to schools more in a minute, but they flipped on that like a day later. Okay. Now, they kept golf courses, tennis courts, pickleball, all that stuff chained up. Don't play basketball. Don't do this for five weeks. It was abominable. It was unconscionable. And I think when many people go to uh, mark an X by a candidate's name in June, I think they'll think about April of 2021. They may not even think about anything in the recent 14 months, but they might. But they're going to think the more the most of the electorate has told me, I think about those five weeks when I make my decision. Okay, fine. But this is going to go in the positive direction because we're in a more positive place. Now, what happens at that point when we've talked about the potential for off-ramps, and I was bringing it up as we started the show, it has to go somewhere, okay? Um, We can't stay strong much longer. And that's not some kind of inherent weakness on our part. That's an inherent um, misunderstanding of human nature. And we've misunderstood human nature so much during the course of this pandemic. When we've just just sat at the at the feet of the Ontario science fiction table and they have laid out a worst case scenario and we're like, oh, my God, they're predicting A, B, C. Well, they are and they aren't. People defend the science fiction table by suggesting that it's a worst case scenario. I'll buy that. You're right. It is. But do they factor in human behavior? Do they factor in human adjustment? Do they factor in our own ability to risk mitigate, which we showed and showed like champions, if you will, to take a word from the premier, from August through November when the Delta variant was here. And lots of talk about doom and gloom, unsafe schools, don't open the stadiums, don't open the restaurants, limit capacity to the gym Limit capacity to this and that, theaters, museums. Don't open Massey Hall again. So we heard all that stuff, and uh, we just shrugged our shoulders and thought, (laughs) I'm vaccinated, I'm healthy, I've got my two doses. You be hysterical if you want to. You feel free. I know you see the boat going down the other side of the uh, other side of the water, down the river the other way, okay, with all your influence on it. But this is where it's going. So you have to have loads of experience, as I said earlier, implementing high stakes measures. Define them, okay? It's not easy to analyze. No one thinks that, but you will have to in this case in the next four and a half months. So I think good times are ahead, and they're not that far from right now. I know what a three weeks it's been. Believe me, in my household, in my own mind, in my brain, in your brain, in my heart, in your heart, I know what we're going through right now, okay? And I don't give a second's hesitation to telling you I think we're headed to a much, much better place. And I'll lay out some of why over the course of the rest of the show. But if a government, this is how it works to me. And I'm thinking about this last night. I wrote it down because I wanted to get it right. If you've increased your powers during COVID, if you give them back and you prep legislation for the next pandemic, you're going to earn trust. What do we do next time that's different? What do we do wrong this time? And if governments aren't willing to say that, A, they don't deserve to get reelected. B, they probably aren't. You need to give your people 
a reason to trust you. Now, let me flip that to what's happening in the United Kingdom right now, because it's not the same scenario, but um, there are things that have gone on in Ontario, in Canada as a whole, in, you know, you name it, it's gone on. Among most Western democracies, people have gotten something wrong. I sure have. You might have as well. Epidemiologists sure have. The common phrase right now is, I don't have a crystal ball. The brilliant Dr. Isaac Bogar said that to us last week. Teresa Tam said that earlier this week. Nobody does. We're well aware, by the way, <laughs> that nobody in public health has a crystal ball. Um, that It's nice that they actually are admitting it now after 22 months. I think that's awesome. Okay. The first, uh, th- that's the first sign, right, of, uh, you know, understanding a sense of, of what you can control, what you can't, and what you can see coming and what you cannot. But in the United Kingdom right now, it's a massive, massive issue with Boris Johnson and the level of trust. Um, the, uh, the line that I would use comes from a movie in uh, 1989 called Mississippi Burning. And Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe are trying to get these white supremacists to all turn on each other and admit that they killed some civil rights workers. Um, what's happening now is Gene Hackman's character turns to Willem Dafoe's and says, looks like the rattlesnakes are starting to commit suicide. And they are in the United Kingdom. Okay, There is a turn happening within the government itself. And it's not behind closed doors. It's very public. Listen to this from Good Morning Britain. And this is a great cautionary tale for any element of government that thinks, I can keep a deception up here. I don't have to be accountable to my public or the voters or the constituents. Uh, But the minister for the armed forces, he's high up in Boris Johnson's government. James Heapy is an MP and minister for the armed forces. And he goes a bit back and forth with the fantastic host Adil Ray on Good Morning Britain this morning. Here's how it went. Is that one thing that you need from the members of the public right now at all times? Well, the thing that you need from the members of public is consent to serve as their government and their trust that you as members of government are making good decisions that are in their interests. And do you think right now that the members of the public and your constituents trust Prime Minister Johnson? No, I, my mailbag tells me very clearly that they do not. Okay, and so then how does he regain? I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. If we don't trust the leader of this country in the middle of a pandemic, when he's about to tell us about more restrictions or less restrictions, he's in charge of almost every, every part of our lives. We don't trust him, is what people are telling you. Where do we go well, from here? Well, I think what we have to do is, firstly, if you don't take the Prime Minister on the basis of what he said in the Commons the other week, then hopefully Sue Gray's report will uh, answer whatever questions you have. And everybody in Parliament and in government is wanting to see what that report concludes. He's probably done. I, it's the first time I've thought that. It's the first time I've said that, that the Prime Minister of, of, of the United Kingdom will resign at some point in time, maybe by the weekend. I didn't think it would come to this. He had a garden party with 30 or 40 people on the eve of Queen Elizabeth burying her husband, Prince Philip. So you can imagine in England, in Scotland, you can imagine in the United Kingdom how that goes over. But that's unbelievable audio this morning uh, from the Minister of uh, Armed Forces in the United Kingdom. I want you to hear this from uh, CNN last night because there has been a lot of talk about vaccinated v. unvaccinated. And a lot of people say to me, you know, CNN isn't what it once was. It's not it's not what it was. And the ratings have dropped in this and that is are things like this. Why CNN host Don Lemon said this about unvaccinated people last night. The unvaccinated people in the U.S. are key to the to the uh, reason that coronavirus, the variants are emerging. And the reason why it's replicating and, and mutating, it's because of unvaccinated people who are doing their own research online. I can't do my own research better than experts who's, who have devoted their lives to medical and, and scientific research. When I tell people, I said, well, you know, they'll say, well, I've been doing the own, my own research and uh, last week I was in Miami. I said, how did you get to Miami? I flew, that's science. <laughs> so if you don't believe in science, why didn't you walk? Okay, some of that's fair, but fully vaccinated people are spreading this virus like crazy right now. And I do wonder if there's been a bit of a paradigm shift 
in vaccinated people, I am, three shots, hi, how are you, uh, our opinion about being around unvaccinated people. I don't terribly feel the same concern that I did four months ago. There was a great debate on TVO's The Agenda last night, which airs at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock, and the host of The Agenda is TVO's Steve Pakin. It's great to have you on. We haven't talked in a while, and, and I always love watching your show. I checked it out last night. I watch it often. You are too kind, and uh, not only that, I am amazed at how upbeat you are given how early it is. Bravo. Well, and it's been three mornings of getting up even earlier because, you know, doing you're not sure if you're going to be late or not. So Monday morning was, uh, that, that was harrowing. That was a white-knuckle drive, and you had to be up <laughs> that much earlier. And I'm not a, I'm, I know you've had your uh, moments where you've been working from home. It's not the same, is it? It's you, you got to feel that energy of the studio sometimes, don't you? You are 100% right about that. And yes, uh, when Omicron hit, we got sent back to uh well, I guess everybody's everybody except a handful of people are are uh, back at home now. We got a few people in the control room, and I'm back up in the attic hosting the show from there. <laughs> and you are right; it's not the same. We hope you, we hope you're back very very soon. When you hear that Don Lemon cut, do you think I worry that sort of I don't know that feels sort of like five months ago stuff? But you had a great debate with a ton of interesting guests last night. Do you think the tide has shifted to where fully vaccinated people aren't as terror? And and you've had COVID, so you've built up uh, acquired immunity that we're not terribly concerned who's around us as much as we were maybe six months ago. Well, if, for those people, obviously, who've had, as I have, and I guess as you have, uh, two shots and a booster, and, and I've had COVID, you're quite right. So I've got the immunity that I get from the shots. I've got the immunity that I get from having had it. So, yeah, I, I think I feel a little more comfortable nowadays. But, but you know, it's still not time to let our guard down. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we got we got to get rid of this thing. And, and Don's comments, it's interesting, uh, that 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 feels a little harsh to me. What do you think? I, mean, I understand the chase for ratings and, you know, everybody, all the cable TV channels, their numbers are all down across the board a lot. And you can, you know, I guess Donald Trump's not being there as part of the explanation for that. But I don't know. I just I don't like this demonizing of people. I'm not sure how far it gets us. Well, you've had I know you've had Dr. Buzari on before, um, Dr. Andrew Buzari. And he's a great guest. Yeah, he was on and, last night. Yeah. yeah and, and I saw that. And, and he comes on with us a good chunk as well. And he's documented probably. And I said to him before, I, I think it might be something we differ on. He still thinks some of this is a question of access and essential workers and trust of the system. And I'm willing to buy that. But I, I was, you know, to my limit, since you asked me about Don Lemon's comments, I, I think that was a major issue in March, April, and May when we were all scrambling. When can I get my first shot? When's it going to be my turn? We were certainly doing that. I don't know. I don't know how, how you can claim long hours or your location or where you live or who you live with is stopping you 11 months from now. And a lot of people that have been hesitant to do this and where Don is in the state, Steve, it's documented. They're black people. They're brown people. They 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 remember the Tuskegee experiment. They've been marginalized. They've been, they, they don't necessarily trust what they're being told here. And that's a thing. And Greg, that's a great point for you to make, and and uh, I think that's 100% true. For, for the vast majority of people, they have a reasonable amount of faith in the healthcare system. They have a reasonable amount of faith in government. Obviously, the the facts bear that out. Almost 90% of us have gone to get vaccinated, so obviously we are we are comfortable and content with with the narrative that is being sent to us. However, we do, and I think Dr. Boozeri made a great point about this last night. Mm-hmm. There are a good handful of people. And even if it's only 10% of the Canadian public, right, that's that's a lot of people. That's millions of people. There are a good chunk of people out there who either have had a negative interaction with the healthcare system or who just don't trust authority. And, uh, you know, I was one of the things I've been trying to figure out is, is whether or not, like, what could you say? Everybody knows about COVID. Everybody. The recognition of, of what this thing is and what we need to do to end it, everybody knows about. And yet there's still... 10% of the people who declined to get vaccinated. I always wonder, is there anything anybody could say at this stage of the game that would make somebody who has yet to get vaccinated get vaccinated? Because I can't imagine what it would be. I, I, but and apparently, I, it, there is still something that can be said. There are still hesitant people who are apparently open to persuasion if the right argument is made. So I'm interested in those folks and what could get them to get vaccinated. Steve, you nailed it. Steve Pakin, our guest from TVO's The Agenics. We had a pharmacist on who opened up his clinic on January 3rd on the Stat Holiday. Uh, and he said he saw, and it was for educators specifically, and he said he saw a lot of educators coming in for their first shot. So they taught all fall 
all September, October, November. When uh, when we got to remember too, we did pretty well with Delta. There was a lot of disaster predicted and mayhem predicted by the Ontario Science Table, and it never materialized because we're highly vaccinated. We're not the United States. We're not Mississippi or Louisiana. So we did really well. And you remember the concern: oh, don't open restaurants, don't bring the Blue Jays back, don't gather. Don't. We did really well, and then Omicron scared the bejabbers out of us because it's clearly a ton more transmissible, and it was well, in the virus was going to move in, a, in a, with a speed that just that Delta didn't. I, I think what's interesting is that you did what I think I do and most people do, which is to say you made a comparison between, let's say, red states or deep south states where you think the, the antipathy to government and the desire to get the shot is particularly uh, suspicious. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, I mean, I don't know what, I hadn't checked the numbers today, obviously, but I guess we're around 10,000 positive tests a day in, in the province of Ontario for 15 million people. You don't have to go that far, Greg. Go to Massachusetts, a blue state, highly educated, lots of people, I'm sure, wanting to comply with the public health uh, regulations. They had 15 to 20,000 positive test cases routinely every day for weeks, and they've got half our population. So if, if, if one of the points you want to make is that, relatively speaking, we're doing not badly, I think that's not a bad point to make. Relatively speaking, we're doing not badly. You don't have to go as far as Mississippi. You can go to Massachusetts, right. not that far away, and they're doing 50% worse than we are. Let's get into the uh, – I, I loved the show last night. Let's get into the politics of it. And uh, and I, I said it on January – when did this happen? The 4th when – sorry, the 3rd when it was announced kids wouldn't be going back to school and we'd lock down quite hard on restaurants, gyms, theater, no no fans at Leafs, Raptors games. I didn't know what the political win was for Doug Ford then. When you look at that then, because he's got opposition parties unlike everywhere in the States, if you lock down too hard in the States, the, the opposition party says open it up. If you're floor or Texas, the Democrats say, you're being reckless with people's health. Close it up. We have a very strange scenario here where we have a right-of-center government locking down incredibly hard, and we've got left-of-center, Paul, you know, two parties that are that can't, that can't tell them to open up. They just say, well, it's too bad this happened, but this could have been prevented. So then you don't have anybody advocating to open up again. Well, and that's one of the reasons why uh, I, I think those brand-new parties, which probably your listeners have heard so little about, right? That there's a new blue party. There's a first Ontario party. There's an Ontario party. These are all parties that have been started up by people who have become disaffected with the progressive conservative party in Ontario, or they are offshoots of the people's party, that national party that got a bit of a chunk of the vote in the last federal election. And they are trying to set themselves up as the champions of sort of the, the more libertarian conservative point of view, which which, you know, supporters of those parties would say Doug Ford's government has completely ignored. Uh, Mr. Ford's made an interesting calculation. Even Mm -hmm. though he is a populist progressive conservative, he has decided that he cannot afford uh, to be demonized by those who are further left of center than he is, and therefore he has essentially done, I mean, how many times have you heard him say it? I, I will absolutely do whatever the public health officials tell me to do, period, full stop. And it has driven many of the people who are traditionally part of the conservative base, the more libertarian folks, it has driven them crazy. But four and a half months before an election, you're not going to be surprised that Doug Ford is not going to want to be seen as running afoul of public health regulations. And so that's the that's the choice he has decided to make. It's made a lot of people who are in the conservative family very unhappy, you know, who are asking themselves, wait a second, why are the big box stores allowed to be open? But the small business people who are, after all, Part of the backbone of the party, why are they being shut down uh, when they think they can stay open uh, and, and do so in a healthy way? Lots of good questions coming up over the next four and a half months, leading us to June 2nd, which is Election Day. I, yeah, there's nobody I love talking provincial politics with more than you, and I, I can't imagine your level of intrigue and, and fascination with where it all goes. I got about a minute, so I want to ask you about Rod Phillips' departure. That's a ding. Uh, there's a lot of areas where I live in Durham Region, including Ajax, uh, that are in play. What is, is that a really bad sign to lose uh, a Rod Phillips going into a provincial election? Well, let's put it this way. I've never seen this kind of thing happen before, where you have what is widely perceived to be a star minister four and a half months before Election Day, not only say, I'm standing down and and deciding not to run again, but I'm quitting right now. I I mean, there's more going on here than we know. And then the premier's office and Rod Phillips' office both put out press releases, and not in a word of either of those press releases is there anything about why he's leaving at this particular juncture. 
It is awfully, awfully curious, Greg. I don't know if we're ever going to find out, but boy, there's something going on here, obviously, that we don't know about. Yeah, 100%. Uh, watch him on the agenda on TV Ontario, 8 and 11 o'clock, Monday through Friday. Great pleasure having you on Toronto today, as always, Steve. Thanks for making the time. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much. You got it. Former Toronto Mayor David Miller, our guest, he presided over, as mayor, a massive snowstorm in January of 08. But this one topped that for that. Let's spend a few minutes with a Global News meteorologist, uh, Anthony Farnell. You know, I said this, so I don't know if you can invoice accordingly. You should get paid more this week, but then we're going to take that back in the middle of June for a week when nothing happens. And we just, you know, I, you know you're just throwing up sun, sunny uh, sunny magnets on on your weather screen. And, and you know, this, this, is a, this is a week where everybody earns their keep, I think. You've been great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although, if that was the case, if uh, the weather guys in San Diego would make almost <laughs> nothing then. but uh... <laughs> Yes, the Honolulu NBC uh, meteorologist is sort of like, same as yesterday. I don't know what to tell you, and we don't live in that kind of a environment. When we look back, and, and I mentioned to you on Monday that Thursday night, I heard you predict this and say, hey, you might be thinking school is going to go uh, cool day law on Monday morning. My guess is it may not. Um, did we get about what you might have thought going into, say, Sunday afternoon, or do we get even more? Uh, we, we got actually even more, and we always knew that there was going to be a, it's a tough forecast because it was such a tight uh, snowfall gradient on the backside, and that, that did show up. We saw London with only about 13 to 15 centimeters, and then nothing, not even a flake falling in Windsor. Uh, even the west end of the GTA, a lot less snow than, say, downtown Toronto, and just east, Oshawa, 55 centimeters, Whitby over 50 as well. So there was that change as you go west, but uh, those snowfall amounts ended up being even heavier than I thought because a lot of it has to do with uh, you try and, and forecast the amount of liquid that there's going to be in the storm and then what that would mean in in the form of snow. And a lot of that has to do with the type of snowflakes that fall, uh, how much air pockets are in there. So mm-hmm. that's all these complicated forecasts that, that even in this day and age, computer models have a really hard time with. There's nowhere to put the snow. And that's the conversation I think we're starting to have now is uh, we're damned if we damned if we don't. If we leave some of it on the road and leave some element of, of clear sidewalks, then the roads aren't great. And if we pile up the sidewalks with snow banks, eventually there's there's no way to walk. It's almost like we're choosing walking or driving in the biggest city in Canada right now. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of walking on the road, which uh, doesn't bode well when you have all this freezing back up later today. So I know sidewalks have just been been horrible and it, it's yeah that battle you have the sidewalk plow that puts it back onto the road and then the snow plow puts it back in the sidewalk uh i you know I, I grew up in montreal and and they have a very efficient way of literally removing the snow from the city uh within 72 to <laughs> to four days of, of, a, of a storm so uh, we don't have that here we don't have the snow blowers the trucks to get it out uh and now it, it's going to basically become cement late this afternoon and uh, that temperature is going to just plummet the night tonight. So uh, if you're listening at home, you still have a few hours to, to clear that snowbank, but uh, it's going to be awfully tough later today. Yeah, Anthony Farnell, our guest Global News meteorologist. Yeah, time's precious because I think we're going to, what, a high of plus four this morning and a dip to minus 15. So we've got another day. We had one last week where the temperature moves close to 20 degrees in about a 12, 14-hour span, and today is another one. Yeah, these are these uh, Alberta Clippers that kind of move through. They they bring you that brief warm-up, but then on the backside, uh, you get all that uh, Prairie Province cold air. And uh, if you take a look at a map this morning, wind chills in the minus 40s again through uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And uh, we're not going to see that here, but wind chills in the minus 20s, uh, potentially even a record cold morning uh, as we go Thursday night into mm. Friday. So. Uh, there's a lot that's at play, and, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that we still have this deep snowpack that, that refrigerates the air, and especially at night, we'll, we'll notice those temperatures extra cold because of it. I know you and I aren't qualified to be, um, you know, City of Toronto engineers, but in our spare time, you know, like for a Halloween costume, <laughs> at least for the next a minute, we can talk about it. I, I don't know what could have been done. You've seen this your whole life. You've studied this your whole life. Sometimes Mother Nature just wins, and I felt like that Monday, if 
if you told me when we talked that the DVP and Gardner would both be, I never in a million years would have, and that didn't happen until our show ended, but I never would have believed it would happen. And Salt, Sand, Salter, Sanders, those wouldn't have made any difference when we're talking about the volume. It's It was the plows that needed to be out there. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And, and I was looking back at the, the snow depth change, and uh, we got 24 centimeters in downtown Toronto in three hours. That I have never seen before. There's no, <laughs> there's no city, no snowplow crew that can uh, compete with that. You just have to let it fall. And the timing, of course, right before the morning commute. Um, yeah, those highways shutting down, that was actually the best case scenario that we shut them down when we did because you've seen in the States where you just let people get onto the interstates and, and they're stranded there for, for potentially a day or more. So uh, it could have been worse. Uh, I know <laughs> the TTCs uh, having internal conversations about a couple of things. One, what kind of tires are on these buses uh, for them all to get stranded. And, and also when you have a bus get stuck in a snowbank, do you send out another bus to go get stuck in that snowbank? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, there were there weren't a lot of great solutions. Well, we'll be watching tonight, uh, and yeah, your uh, your your final warning is get the, if you haven't cleared the snow yet, it's going to be easier to do it right now than it is twelve hours from now. That's exactly it, and no major snowstorms. I guess that's the good news. We're not going to have to worry at least yet about putting the snow from the next one. But uh, at the same time, after today's warmth, uh, it's not going to get back above freezing potentially till February. So this, this what you see out there is, is here to stay for a while. I don't care when pitchers and catchers report. I just want to know when April is. We're going to start a countdown at some point. Even, and, and we'll take a few flurries in April because it goes away basically and when it hits the ground. Love having you on, and thank you for doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Take care. Anthony Farnell, uh, Global News Meteorologist. Well, to get you where you need to go, public transit, a factor now, especially by choice and sometimes by design. Uh, Stuart Green is uh, with Media Relations and spokesperson for the TTC, and he's kind enough to join us now. I'm just noticing what a big Wolves fan you are. Someday, when life's normal and back on its access, we'll talk about the inspiration that Wolves is in the Premier League. Week after week after week, Stuart. Happy to, Greg. Uh, always happy to talk about Wolf. That would be great. Um, how does today look? We'll, we'll go backwards chronologically, but how does today look? We've obviously got uh, a lot of snow that's been cleared. Sidewalks, pathways are still issue, but for your buses, for your streetcars, forecast that for our listeners today. Um, you don't anticipate, uh, do you anticipate issues with, uh, with either drivers being out or snow being still an issue compared to two days ago? Well, of course, we always, uh, I mean, safety is top of mind for everything we do. So we, we operate as safely as we can, given the conditions. So if you look at this morning's, you know, road conditions, they're a bit better than they were yesterday, certainly much better than they were on Monday. Um, we still have about 130 buses that are uh, out on the road we need to get back in. Uh, that shouldn't impact service too much this morning. So the good news is that for people taking transit, um, Lines one and two, one, two, and four are all running as normal, so there are no interruptions on those lines other than what we may experience later in the morning, but nothing due to weather. Uh, line three in Scarborough, the RT is completely shut down. We're mm-hmm. running buses there as a replacement. So um, it's, it's definitely going to be a better morning uh, in terms of transit uh, as, you know, as people are going back to school and work. Uh, this morning, um, they they can expect uh, much more reliable service than they may have had the last couple of days. For sure. How long? How long will it take? Could it? Could we be saying by the weekend uh, to get uh, to get 130 uh, TTC buses picked up? Would I, that's really ambitious, even to say have it be done 48 hours from now, isn't it? Um, I, I think it's doable today. Uh, yeah. You know, we had as of yeah as of last night, um, we had about 300 that were still out uh, trapped in, uh, in in snow banks and things. Uh, we cleared more than half of that overnight. Uh, we were working with some city of Toronto contractors who helped us dig out. Um, so so the good news is that a lot of those buses that are still out there are already cleared of snow. So we just need to get people to drive them back. We can't pull drivers out of service because then we're impacting people's commute. So better that we let the commute happen. Then when we've got some drivers available, we'll put them out and we'll get those buses back in. So, but, but, you know, 130 buses out of, you know, we put out about 1300 buses this morning. Mm-hmm. So we, we're okay for bus service in terms of what's scheduled. So you're basically, I mean, doing the quick math, you're basically operating about 90% of, of full capacity with, with service. Well, for buses. Well, no, we, we, we have more than 13. We, we put 1,300 in a service. We have, you know, over 2,000 buses available to us. So, um, so as right. I say, we, we can put other buses 
uh, so so those 130 buses that are out there uh, aren't impacting what our scheduled services this morning too much. Uh, it's Stuart Green joining us from the TTC. Many of your buses, and this is obviously, you know, there, there, there's been a projecting Ford. They're more environmentally friendly. Uh, th- but I wondered about that, and I think it's been theorized. So you'd be able to clarify it and, and shut the theory down that a lot of these buses got stuck uh, because there just isn't a, a gas bus or a diesel bus. There's no give it with the gas pedal in particular. I, I didn't see it necessarily that way because I just think the snow was too high a volume and came too yeah. quickly. Mother nature is going to win sometimes. We have to accept that. Well, and that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we have snow tires, for example, on our uh, the articulated buses, those bendy buses that you see on some of the uh, the longer routes like Bathurst. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that, that didn't make a difference. Um, you know, there was just there was so much snow that fell so quickly on Monday morning that, um, that you know, you know, short of being a, a Sherman tank or something, you weren't going to be able to get through that snow. So, um, you know, it's 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 unfortunate. I mean, you know, we, we have wet, you know, we have winter weather protocols. We have vehicles that can handle most storms. Uh, you know, Monday was not most storms. It was exceptional. Now, what I've what I've heard from some drivers is they made uh, calls for help, and I'm just going to guess that, that they were too voluminous, um, and there's not much. Is there anything that could be done for again a once in a decade, a once every two decades type storm? Well, so so you know a couple of things there. First of all, you know, are these once every decade or two now? Uh, you know, should we expect that you know mm-hmm. as climate change becomes a thing or a, more of a thing, you know, these kinds of storms become more the norm? Um, you know, we certainly will take lessons learned from from this week. We always do. Whenever we have sort of situations like this, look at ways that, you know, we could have been better prepared. Are there ways? Um, you know, the other thing that we are combating, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but the other reality that we're combating is staff shortages due to COVID. Yeah. So we've got about a 5% absence rate due to COVID. So our transit control center that was fielding those calls from operators who, by the way, were doing, you know, quite heroic work out in the field on Monday. Um, you know, unfortunately, they were having to wait a long time to get through to someone at transit control. And uh, again, this is, you know, something that we can we can learn from and, and try and improve going forward. I was going to say it, it is that, you know, pardon the pun. It was the perfect storm. The covid shortages, <laughs> yeah. um, the, the way and this coming late night on a weekend. And uh, I know people said, well, where are the salters where you can't salt and sand this kind of volume? You can't. And you no. can plow, which is why they shut down the DVP. But just just even doing that, Stuart, that's that's unprecedented. I don't think we've ever seen the DVP and Gardner closed at the same time in our lifetime. No, it, it, you're right. I mean, you know, I've lived in Toronto for all the, the first two years of my life, and I don't recall that ever happening. But, uh, you know, the, the city the city has done some great work, too. I mean, you know, everybody was, was dealing with it. Uh, you know, the, you know the, the thing that I did see was, was a lot of goodwill from our customers. Uh, there was some social media video of people getting out to push a bus up the hill on Jane Street. Oh. Um, you know, and people generally were patient with us because everybody realized that we were all in it, and, and it was exceptional. Uh, you know, but how we deal with it, uh, in the days after, you know, like yesterday and today and going forward, that's sort of how I think we'll be more judged. One more for you, Stuart. One, buses are, is there any potential for them to get stuck today? Is there any concern that you have on certain roadways or certain spots that you're like, there's still a lot of snow on those roads. The plows haven't gotten quite, quite apparently to everything. Any concern about buses getting stuck today like yesterday? Yeah, I, I don't want to say never, but uh, all the major arterials are, are are very well cleared. A lot of the side streets are now cleared, so uh, you know we should be okay. Uh, if we know of roads that are that are going to be a bit tricky to navigate, we just we simply won't go on them. We'll divert around them. Stuart Green uh, from the TTC. Let's talk more often, Stuart. It's great to make your acquaintance. Sure. I appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you. Earlier in the show, before we get to Emma Title, and I'm excited to talk to her, um, Steve Pakin made the point about the premiere became a bit of a big deal. It was sort of, you know, fresh chum in the water, if you will, right? Go back to the Jaws film, put some chum in the water, see if uh, Bruce the Shark comes by with uh, with Doug Ford driving around, digging people out. The shovel wasn't that big, I know. But, uh, but Steve Pakin made the point that there's a little bit of a scramble right now, not just with polling, but also the lifting of restrictions. And, and Doug Ford can do a lot more to help people in Toronto. We'll get there with Emma, but here's what Steve Pakin from TV Ontario said. Mr. Ford's made an interesting calculation. Even mm-hmm. though he is a populist, progressive conservative, he has decided that he cannot afford uh, to be demonized by those who are further left of center than he is, and therefore he has essentially done, I mean, how many times have you heard him say it? I, I will absolutely do whatever the public health officials tell me to do, period, full stop. And it has driven many of the people who are 
traditionally part of the conservative base, the more libertarian folks. It has driven them crazy. But four and a half months before an election, you're not going to be surprised that Doug Ford is not going to want to be seen as running afoul of public health regulations. And so that's the that's the choice he has decided to make. It's made a lot of people who are in the conservative family very unhappy. Yeah, there's a lot there uh, to that. Our next guest uh, wrote about it. Uh, she's city columnist for the Toronto Star. Uh, she is Emma Title, and she joins me now in Toronto today. It's great to have you back. Thank you very much for making the time. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm really good. By the way, we'll, we'll get into some heavy stuff here, but I couldn't help thinking uh, that your, uh, your outdoor hockey league where, you know, you, you show these um, jerk boys whose boss is probably delayed until we can shovel all the, all the rinks away, right? Yeah, it is. I was actually <laughs> supposed to play with my dad today, but oh. yeah, it's not going to happen. I took an outdoor skate. We went to visit a baby because you got to go see the baby, as you know. And we uh, we'd been about eighteen months, and we went to uh, uh, what, the Rennie uh, Rink, Rennie Park. Amazing! What a great rink there. Do you know yeah, that one? Are, I don't think I know that one. I play at McCowan, which is in Scarborough, and that's I think it's the best outdoor rink I've skated on in the city. Is that the one the you can? Ice s- is just always really good. Is that the one you can see kind of from the Go Train? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, if you don't it hear has, the go train going past, it's one of those it, really good um, uh, spirally things that kids can skate on. I don't know what you call it. The you know one of those paths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that yeah. Rennie Rennie has that uh, as yeah. well. Well, we I, we don't want you to get rusty, so we got to move all this snow out of the way and got to uh, got to end this. But you make the point, and and I thought it was a really interesting one because a lot of people have referenced um, Mel Lastman calling in the army in 1999, and we have we've had Kathy Crow on the show before. You had a conversation with her, and you said for people who are homeless, for people who are disenfranchised, that move by Mel Lastman had a tremendous benefit. Explain to our audience what that was. So in 1999, um, as I'm sure lots of people listening can recall, Mel Lassman, when he was mayor, called in the army uh, for a snowstorm. And we kind of became, Toronto became a laughing stock uh, to the rest of the country. And I think the point that Kathy Crow was making, who's a, a nurse, I think she calls herself a street nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, she works with with the homeless uh, and, and the point that she was making, which she made to the Toronto board of health this week is that even though everybody laughed at that decision, one good thing that came out of it is that they opened the federal um, armory. So people could go in and get warm. And that was sort of one of the things that happened that came out of that decision that was actually really good for the city's homeless population. And it was, uh, in in large part because many many homeless people were i think she said that that homeless residents showed up to the meeting and said you know we need a warm place to go and so i think her point is that was that um even though you know we laughed at mel lastman for calling upon higher the higher powers that be that there are good things that come from that and um, and she really wants that to happen again in a different sense which is calling on higher levels of government to help uh, with the housing crisis and to get people inside. Well, and Emma, this was 23 years ago, and it's difficult to say that, um, you know, it's difficult to point out just how much, how greatly exacerbated our homeless problem in Toronto has become. It was a problem in 1999, but and COVID has exacerbated the exacerbation of our homeless problem uh, for compared to 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that was the point I wanted to make, is that... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are always saying, why don't why don't the homeless just go inside? You know, they have this opportunity that the city, you know, consults with them when they're in the encampments. They keep coming back and saying, look, just go into one of the shelter hotels. We have space for you. And that's well and good. But I mean, ask yourself this. Would you go inside to a congregate setting with a lot of other people during a pandemic, especially right now with an extremely contagious variant? And if you have lots of comorbidities and, you know, I just think it's it's an unfair ask or it's unfair to judge someone. You know, if somebody wants to go inside, that's great for them. But if there are people who don't, I don't think we can really judge. I personally wouldn't want to. And so a lot of homeless people are faced with a really difficult decision, which is stay outside in the freezing cold or go inside somewhere where you might get COVID. We know there were 50 outbreaks Um or sorry, 50 shelters were in outbreak and one person died recently. So it's it's a tough choice. And I think anybody who tries to make it simple is being disingenuous. 
Emma Titles, our guest, Toronto Star on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Um, and I heard I heard a clip from John Tory. It might have even been prior to Christmas. It might have been ah, it's just after Christmas when we had an extreme cold snap. So this is before the snow. And he started talking about looking out for the homeless and making that a massive priority. And I thought about the summer. And I thought about the encampments and, and how, well, politicized that got and, and how violent that got. And a lot of fingers were pointed by some members of city council. And I thought, and then I think now of everything you're laying out in your column, and I'm like, what's going to change? Like what, what changes in the next two weeks? I just, I, 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 I don't know that John Tory is going to make that same call that as you note, and I note Mel, Ra- Mel Lastman kind of got derided for, but it, but it benefits people in Toronto who are in terrible circumstances right now. If he does do that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that that's one of the frustrating things that it's people are always saying, like I, I spoke to a doctor who works with these populations who was saying like that it's frustrating when people say, oh, there's just not enough money. But we've seen through COVID that, you know, there's resources for everything. If you want to put them there, we can act fast. But it seems as though this is willful neglect and people just don't care. Um, it's terrible to say, but it's true. Can the... Can the province and the city work together in this capacity? It is the biggest city in the province, in the country. When Toronto kind of freezes and paralyzes, if you will, uh, it, it has an impact on everybody else around Toronto. And yet I I don't know that there's been enough from the premier. And, and I know you had your own observations of the premier driving around, digging people out, uh, his poll numbers at an all-time low. And and at the same time, there's got to be some uh, will and willpower from the city and the province. I think the biggest issue people have had with the city, Emma, is is that we've wanted you know more yelling and screaming from the city about what it needs from the province over the course of the pandemic. And they sure should be asking now. I completely agree. I think that John Tory can be very polite. It's one of the things that many people admire about him. I like it. I think he seems like a nice guy. I think there's a time to be a nice guy, though, and there's a time to be um, a thorn in the side of the premier. And I think that he could do that more. Um, He would maybe say he does that more behind the scenes, but I think it would be powerful if he did it publicly and demanded help from higher levels of government and and sort of made the case, a stronger case that this is a crisis. Can city councils do the same? I think you and I have talked about how kind of paralyzed we have been. And, and even David Miller's on the show tomorrow. He's documented it. Blastman went through it. Doug's brother, Rob, went through it, where people got aggressive and vocal at city council about what they needed for their ward or if they disagreed with something the mayor was doing. Now and then that crops up, but I haven't seen very much of it. And why will it change if we have another municipal election and, and John Tory gets gets more time? And I, I don't think anybody doubts that he will if that's what he wants. Mm-hmm. I, I personally just think that they need to stop clearing the encampments. I know that might, many people might think that's a radical view because they say that we need to have public space for everybody. I, I don't see the point of clearing them in these really aggressive hostile ways that just sows distrust. They, they just go to another encampment, don't they? Exactly. The, the encampments just pop up. I mean, if at least if yeah, I would still think it was cruel, but at least it would be somewhat effective if you just cleared them. But they, they just pop up again almost immediately. So I, I don't understand the point. It's expensive. It just breeds mistrust. I, I don't get it. Yeah, tiny how tiny homes are the key. You see what they do in Seattle and some other uh, U.S. cities, and they doesn't have to be blue state or red state. I even saw a story. I think it, I, I now I'm convinced it was Kingston that uh, that is building you know kind of tiny prefabricated homes. We've got space in this city to do that. I know we feel really crowded sometimes. I know we sure do right now. The last couple of days, Emma, but there there's a way. There's a way that we can work with the Ontario government to do this for for people in in our city. We just haven't we haven't thought outside the box enough. I agree. I think there is a way, but you know, we do have a premier who, as you mentioned, was out on the snow day with a tiny shovel, and that's just, I guess. Different strokes for different folks, as he might say.
<laughs> well, you you call it tiny. I, I I go diminutive. I don't know which is worse. Okay. I I you know and uh, if uh, if if men listening have heard either, it's uh, they 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 mean the same, I suppose, at a certain point in time. Will I you- mean, my eighteen month old daughter has a shovel. It's <laughs> roughly the same size as that one, but. Yeah, uh, minuscule. Let's go. I don't know if minuscule makes. Again, I'm I'm coming up with words that make nobody feel any better about uh, anything. Um, thank you very much for the time. I enjoyed your read, and uh, I always enjoy. Our, we'll find more to dis. Maybe we'll find stuff to disagree on next time because I uh, I was hitting every note with you today. It's uh it's one of those things. Thank you for coming on with me. Thanks, Greg. Our guest now. Guy's led an unbelievable life, and he continues to. He wrote an op-ed in the Toronto Star this weekend, along with our friend Marcus Kolga, about Russia, Ukraine, and what's happening in terms of Canadian influence. He um, He's kind of on the hit list, if you will, of one Vladimir Putin, who um, is a little bit obsessed with him. And Bill Browder wrote a book about this called Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. And he joins Toronto today. Now, it's great to have you on. You want to write on the weekend about the uh, growing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But given the uh, annexation of Crimea that a lot of us uh, know about and have followed, this is this is nothing new. There has been an armed conflict um, initiated by Russia against Ukraine since 2014. The, the, the Russians took uh, Crimea away from Ukraine in 2014, and then they invaded uh, eastern Ukraine. And there is, I think, about 10,000 dead bodies um, but from, from this conflict. And so the Russians have been at it for a long time. And so then the question is, what, what's changed? And, and I think what's changed is that um, Putin, uh, Putin needs some type of uh, military conflict or potential military conflict in order to distract his own people from his own bad uh, governance of Russia. And whenever he's flagging in his popularity, he does some military thing. And so because of the last year with COVID and the economy shrinking and all sorts of other stuff, he needs needs something to flag, uh, to uh, hold up his flagging support. And that's what this whole Ukraine thing is about right now. When we talk about his popularity, I'd ask, um, why is he as concerned about it as he is? It's not, you know, it's not like it's a true, you know, Western democracy. It doesn't feel like it's, an, you know, an election he could use because of his influence um, on and and towards anybody who opposes him politically. So I'd ask, uh, you know, in, in many other countries, people who are considered, quote unquote, dictators aren't necessarily popular, but they're powerful enough that their popularity doesn't matter. So I'd ask why he um, is as concerned about it as to as to sort of perform a, a kind of a wag the dog scenario and take people's attention away. Well, it's a great question. First of all, you're right. Um, he's, he's a dictator. <clears throat> it's not, they, they claim to have democracy. There really isn't. But um, he's kind of a dictator um, at the will of the people. In other words, if all the people decided they didn't want him as a dictator, it doesn't matter how many policemen he controls, there's a lot more people in Russia and and so what he's worried about is is um, you know he he watches these you know movies of Ceausescu being hung from a tank and mm-hmm. and Gaddafi being bayoneted um, after you know hiding in a in a ditch and and that's what he's worried about happening to himself and so he doesn't want a popular uprising um, that he has no ability to control um, to take his power away from him and and so uh, it's easier to be a dictator where people aren't furious with you than it is when they are. And so if they're furious with you and they have good reason to be furious with him, he's stolen so much money. He's been around for 20 years. He's killed all sorts of opposition candidates. He's arrested so many more. Um, it's easy for people to be mad at him. And so the so, so the, the best way of avoiding that is to start a war or, or to continue a war, or to escalate a war. And, and, uh, and the story with Ukraine, it's not just about Ukraine. Ukraine is kind of the object of it. It's all about the West. He's 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 he needs to show the Russian people he's standing up to big foreign powers like the United States and the European Union and Canada and other people. And um, he needs to show that he's a tough leader. And and, and that's what he's trying to do. And and so and then the, the real question is, um, will he follow through with it? Will he invade and and, and will he send um, the official Russian army? So so far, it's just been what they always say in the newspaper. They call them um 
um, you know, Kremlin um, sympathizing, um, whatever, uh, uh, rebels. They, 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 they always, they, they don't ever describe them as Russian troops. And mm-hmm. um, the big difference between um, what's happened before and what could happen now is that there could be, you know, a Russian military invasion, a, a, an official Russian military invasion. I still don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen because uh, it, it's almost like kamikaze suicide for him to do that. If he does that, there'll be a lot of dead bodies. Even if they were to win or to dominate a conflict, the Ukrainians aren't going to just say, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll just come into our country and take our cities and our people and so on. There'll be a lot of dead bodies. Um, That doesn't do well for popularity at home. And if they do that, um, the only response the West really has is to to, to fully isolate Russia economically. And, um, And that will be incredibly costly. And so Putin doesn't want to have that stuff happen. And so what he wants is to look like a tough guy, um, maybe get some kind of appeasement, some acquiescence, some capitulation from, from Western governments, and then walk away and say, look how great I am to his people. Mm. Bill Browder is our guest. This is fascinating stuff on uh, on 640 Toronto here on Toronto today. Uh, he, of course, uh, is the CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and uh, uh, has extensive experience uh, with uh, with Russia. I I bring that up and I'd ask if economic sanctions work against Russia, if G7, G20 countries somehow united and turned up the heat. It's not like it's China, right? We don't we don't open, um, you know, we don't have electronics coming from Russia. We don't look at our clothing labels and say and they say made in Russia. So maybe there's not that much there to put tighten the screws on economically with sanctions to begin with. Or is there? Oh, well, so here's the thing. And, and this is a really great thing from 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 the uh, politics perspective, which is that Vladimir Putin is a um, a total thief. He's a crook. He's stolen enormous amounts of money from his country. And all that money is um, uh, sitting in the West. He doesn't keep it in Russia. And so and, and it's not sitting on accounts with the name Vladimir Putin at such and such bank. Really? It's, it's sitting on accounts. <laughs> He, he has a bunch of guys holding it for him, what I call oligarch trustees. Mm-hmm. And so when you see these oligarchs that are supposed to be worth five, 10, 20 billion dollars, they don't it's not really all their money. Some of it is, um, but a lot of it is Vladimir Putin's. And so there's an easy way to really you know get them by the short and curlies and and that is to freeze the individual assets of the biggest Russian oligarchs. And in doing so, you're freezing Vladimir Putin's assets and you're touching something that he cares more about than anything in the world, which is the money that he's spent the last 20 years accumulating. And um, you don't have to impose economic sanctions on the rest of the people of Russia who don't deserve it because they're just as much victims of the Putin regime as we are. Um, and um, uh, and it doesn't hurt, harm our own economies because um, it's, just, it's just a small number of people. And so this, this is... You know, the, the, the big strategic error that Putin made in stealing all this money and putting it in the hands of such a small number of people is that um, now you can go after a small number of people and really have leverage against him. It's his Achilles heel. It's it's so remarkable. I, I always call myself and uh, we're close to the same age, but I, I say like I'm I'm a Cold War kid. That was with everything around us right now, a pandemic, uh, China looming. The biggest threat to us when we grew up prior to 9-11, and we were grown up by then, was was the Cold War and the potential for nuclear war. And so it was a focus. It was a focus when we talk about it in history class. It was a focus on the on the U.S. news broadcast every night. I lived in Michigan for 10 years. Um, it's it. But now it feels like we've we've just taken our eyes off the ball here. What what is it with us in North America that we've sort of, you know, pushed this aside and we don't see them as either the threat to democracy or the threat to the rest of Europe um, that they once were built. Well, at the end of the Cold War, we were so happy that the Cold War ended and we had the peace dividend and everybody could go back to, um, you know, (laughs) filling in their nuclear fallout shelters and and all that kind of stuff that, um, you know, uh, and there was a period of time when it when it wasn't a dictatorship right after the end of the Soviet Union. Boris Yeltsin had democracy and it was all sort of, you know, potentially going in the right direction. but we were also busy celebrating the end of the Cold War. We didn't understand that a new Cold War was starting, which was not a Cold War against communists. This is a Cold War against criminals, against organized crime, which is what Vladimir Putin is all about. And um, 
and it's been really and and the Russians have been very careful about sort of um, finding weaknesses in our own systems and finding individuals, agents of influence who will you know, take money from the Russians in exchange for saying they're not so bad. And so there's a lot of these characters around in, in the United States and Canada and the UK who are all in Germany, who are all who are all um, saying, uh, you know, uh, maybe we should just go light. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, uh, uh, they're not so bad, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they are so bad. Um, this is a country still with its nuclear weapons, but it's run by a criminal regime as opposed to a communist regime. Uh, some might say, why, when, when is it enough for Putin and how much is enough? Because when we talk about billionaires, you referenced in, in your uh, op-ed with, uh, with the uh, awesome uh, Marcus Kolga, who, again, we love uh, at our station, that I'll read this. Some would argue he's the richest man in the world, richer than Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. So why keep kind of putting your fingers in the fire? Does he owe others money for his protection, for his service? It's uh, This is almost like a billionaire in, uh, you know, this is almost Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons or the Brian Cox car- character in Succession where they could easily fly away to an island and be all on their own. No one would bother them ever again, but he doesn't do that. Well, so the money that he has <clears throat> has been stolen. In order to get that money, he's had to take hostages, kill people, put people in jail, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of people very angry with him. And if for any reason, and, and he doesn't keep the money in his own name, as I mentioned before, he mm-hmm. keeps it in the name of these other guys. And, and, and he can't have even a piece of paper, contr- a contractual um, uh, document, which shows that he owns it, because if he did, they could use it to blackmail him. And so the money is really not his if he's not in power. So, yeah. so if, you know, the moment he steps out of power and he calls up the Dimitri and says, hey, could you pass over $2 billion you're holding for me? Dimitri would say, I'm sorry, Vladimir who? And, <laughs> and hang up the phone. And, and so, so, so he's got to stay in power to have his money. And the moment he's not in power, somebody, the next guy will put him in jail. <clears throat> and if he gets put in jail, he'll probably die. And so. But that's sort of the end game here is fascinating because it's, it's a little bit of a game of chicken because. He, you know, he needs it while he's in power. But when does he sort of this is like walking away from the blackjack table, right? When you're on a real roll, like you got to know when to do it. You got to time it ideally. And he's almost 70 years old. And as as you've said, he's accumulated enemies and people with reasons to uh, to either launch a coup or assassinate him or or, you know, vis-a-vis. Let me tell you, there's no Putin presidential library that he can retire to gracefully. Um, he, he, he is stuck. He's stuck in this in this place. His only option for survival, for keeping his wealth and staying out of jail is to stay in power. Wow. Unbelievable intrigue. Uh, Bill Browder, our guest. Thank you so much for the time today. Um, We will have to chat again. Thanks for listening to Toronto today. Back with a live show tomorrow on 640 Toronto between 530 and 9. You can always find us here or wherever you get your podcast. Feel free to subscribe, rate us, tell us what you like, tell us what you want to hear more of. Always open-minded here on Toronto Today. Thank you again for listening.